We are continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh, and it continues to be the theme in our passage today. As I was uh, preparing to preach uh, on this passage, I was reminded of the old sermons of hellfire and brimstone. Some of you know what I'm talking about. These uh, really powerful sermons that really impressed very forcefully upon people the problem of sin and the terrible plight we find ourselves in and warn of the ultimate result of our sin, which is hell. Uh, I think today people don't talk about this much, and if they do mention hellfire and brimstone, normally it's said in jest and somewhat disparagingly to talk about old-time preachers who were trying to scare people into the faith. Uh, I think we think today we're much more enlightened, much more seeker-friendly. We present God in a much more winsome way, I think we believe. And I'll admit, I came to faith in Jesus before I knew anything about hellfire and brimstone. I just wanted Jesus. So I get uh, wanting Jesus apart from uh, that idea. But what do we do when people insist on rejecting Jesus? What do we do when people insist on misrepresenting everything he has to say and on being deliberately obtuse when it comes to his invitation to faith and life? Well, why don't we see what Jesus did? That's what we're going to be looking at today in John chapter 8, verses 21 through 29. And I've titled today's message, Jesus on Sin and Death. Let's start in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you are unable to come. So the Jews were saying, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you are unable to come. This conversation continues, and we're following after what we were looking at last week, where Jesus announces, I am the light of the cosmos. Anyone who follows me will never, ever walk in darkness. I will be to them the light of life. That was the offer. What followed that was not masses of people saying, wonderful Jesus, take us there. It was people arguing and bickering with him about it. They refused to receive what he was offering. They refused to receive from Jesus light and life and to come to faith and trust in him. Uh, They rejected that. And Jesus could have just turned away and walked away, but he continues to talk with them and continues to help them, try to help them understand the magnitude of what's going on here. He tells them something he's already said before. I'm going away very soon. And he knows, Jesus knows, he has less than a year of time here on earth. Uh, Very soon, uh, Passover will arrive within a few months. And he will be crucified and then will rise and ascend to the Father. So he says, I'm going away and you're going to seek me. He's already said this before. He's repeating this again. You're going to seek me. And he says another thing he's already said before. Where I am going, you cannot come. You are unable, incapable of coming. And again, Jesus has been talking about returning to the fellowship of the Godhead. Returning to the Father. 
And if that is what ultimately we as human beings are, spend our whole lives pursuing, is uh, our creator. There is something within us that deeply calls us to the one who gave us life. Why do we think our lives need to have purpose if not because we believe the one who gave us life had a purpose in giving us life? Why is a life without purpose inconceivable to us? But he says, you reject me? Not only am I soon going to be gone from among you, but uh, you're going to continue this pursuit and it's going to be fruitless. But now this time he says something he hasn't said to them before. You will die in your sin. Now that's, that's a big word. Actually, it's a very small word, three letters, but it's, it's a big word in terms of what it seeks to put a name to. Sin is very simply, at its most basic, everything that is not as it should be. Every time you encounter something and say, that's not right, that's sin. That shouldn't be, that's sin. It means, when he says, you will die in your sin, he's, he's not talking about the world, he's talking about you. Everything about you that is not what it should be, you're going to die in the totality of that. And let's be honest. Sin is not just a problem out there. The worst thing about sin is that, that it's a problem in here. My thoughts are often not what they should be. My will is often focused on what it should not be. And I often neglect the things that I should be pouring my heart into. Because I'm selfish and lazy and can't be bothered with doing something more worthy of my life. Sin is woven into me. Jesus says, you reject my offer of light and life? Let me warn you of the consequences of that choice. The, what that means is you're going to die in your sin. You will never free yourself of all of these things that permeate everything about you that are not right. It's going to consume you. The Jews again respond. And this, I've said it, these three chapters are just frustrating. Everything Jesus says, they deliberately, either deliberately misunderstand or completely misconstrue or twist around one way or another. And that's exactly what they do here again. Oh, he says he's going somewhere we can't come. Maybe he's going to kill himself. Now, when he said that last time, they said, maybe he's going to leave this territory and go out among the diaspora and teach the Jews. I mean, teach the Greeks. Um... And this time it's even more disparaging because for a Jew, uh, suicide was never seen as a noble thing. It was considered something that would deny you participation in the life to come. And it would even place your children under a curse because of what you had done. They would suffer the consequences of you taking your own life. It was not seen among Jews as a noble thing. As among Greeks, you know, with Socrates and all this, uh, people uh, might think that there's a noble uh, thing to committing suicide, but not, not, not to Jews. And this is a disparaging remark about Jesus. Oh, wow, what's he saying? Maybe it's not that he's leaving. Maybe he just wants to kill himself. 
deliberately choose to ignore the warning Jesus is giving them. You reject me. Everything that's not right in you will never be right. Never. You're going to die in your sin because you chose it over me. I have a question from these verses. After offering the light of life to any who believe in him and follow after him, Jesus warns that if people reject the offer, they will die in their sin. What does it mean to die in our sin? Let's keep reading verse 23. And he was telling them, you are from below, I am from above. You are from this cosmos. I am not from this cosmos. That is why I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Again, they respond deliberately misconstruing what he's saying. Jesus doesn't back off. He pushes through and tells them what they need to hear, whether they want to hear it or not. He says, let me explain to you why I'm talking about sin. You guys are from down here. I'm from up there. You guys are from this cosmos. You are from this world, this created order. You are a part of creation. Every single one of us is a part of this creation. There's not a one of us that is here because we chose to be here. One day we opened our eyes and here we were. We have no idea how we got here. But it had nothing to do with us. You ever thought about that? You're part of a created order. You came into being because of forces completely outside of your control or knowledge. Jesus says, that's where you come from. I don't come from here. I'm not from around here. I'm not even from this creation. I come from beyond that. I'm reminded of this image that we have both in Ezekiel and in Revelation where God is sitting on his throne and all creation represented by the four living creatures is worshiping their creator and even in Revelation the people of God sitting on thrones with crowns are throwing their crowns on the floor before the creator in worship of God Almighty. All creation, all humankind worships God sitting on his throne and yet between God and everything else there is a sea of glass. There is a visual reminder in these visions that God is not part of this. He's not part of this created order. Between us and him, there is a separation because he is not from this cosmos. He created this cosmos. His existence does not depend on the universe existing. Jesus is saying, I come from outside of creation. That's why I'm telling you that if you reject me, you're going to die in your sins. This time he uses the plural, not just the problem of sin in general, but let's talk about the many instances we're dealing with here. 
If you were to try to count up your sins, you couldn't do it. How many shortcomings? How many times have you said the wrong thing? How many times have you felt the wrong thing, meant the wrong thing? How many times have you been petty or cruel or dismissive or absolutely wrong? How much good have you held on to and failed to bring into the world when you should have? All of that. You're going to die in your many sins and they overwhelm us. It's like a dark cloud around every single one of us. Our many shortcomings and failures. Jesus says, I know you have a problem. What I'm trying to tell you is that I have come to fix the problem you couldn't fix. Let me tell you why I'm the one that can actually fix it. I'm not from here. I'm not one of you. I am not caught up in the problem. I have come from outside of this whole creation that is under the power of sin and death. I have invaded this creation from without to rescue. And why can I do that? Because I'm God. Why did I tell you you're going to die in your sins? Because there's only one person who is in a position to forgive your sins. And that is the one you have offended. We might think, well, my sins are offenses against fellow human beings. I lied to you. I hurt your feelings. I should apologize to you. That's true. Many times, pretty much all of our sin, I think, uh, in one way or another, shortchanges or hurts somebody around us. And it's right to seek to make reparations when you do things wrong and to seek forgiveness. That's all good and right. But you know, before you offend somebody else, you offend the one who gave you life to do good. And instead, you did that. You took the good gifts he gave you and used them to hurt somebody else. Yes, that person is, is an offended party. But before that person is an offended party, the God who put that in your hands and said, do good with it, that's the one you have offended first. Who can forgive all of your sins? Only God. Only he, as the offended party, is in a position to say, I choose to forgive you. Now God, because he is so righteous and so just, will not just wipe away the sin. He says, this must be paid for. I will pay for it. I will cover your debt. All that you owe me, I'll, I'll take it upon myself. But Jesus is saying, this is why I'm warning you that failing to believe, to trust in me has dire, dire eternal consequences. This is your one shot at dealing with sin. I am the only one who has the uh, position and the authority to forgive. And I am the, the only one who has the power to become the perfect author of salvation and by my willing death on the cross pay for the sin of the world. I am the only chance you have. That's why I'm warning you that if you just flippantly turn away from me, if you just dismiss me like some other charlatan out there, 
You have just turned your back on your only chance at dealing with sin. There is no other one out there. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus says you have to understand that I am God, the only one in a position to forgive sins. Unless you come to that realization and accept my offer of pardon, you will die in your sins. That cloud that envelops your life will never be removed. Now, Some translations there have, unless you believe that I am he, and, of course, the way Greek is written, it could, that ego I me, which I've already said, is that phrase that we find when in the Septuagint translation, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. In Exodus, when Moses says to God, who should I tell the Israelites sent me to deliver them from slavery? God says, tell them that I am, ego I me. I am sent you. That's exactly the phrase Jesus is using, the wording. And he leaves it dangling there so that the full force of it is. He doesn't say that I am this or I am that or that I exist. That would be uh, patently obvious. Jesus is standing in front of them, talking to them. He's not just saying I exist. Nobody is debating that. He is saying you have to believe that I am. And as Jews, they knew exactly what he was saying. You have to understand that I am Yahweh. I am God Almighty. Come to earth to rescue you. Unless you understand that and accept the offer, you will die in your sins. There's no other way. I have a question from these verses. Jesus insists that we must believe that he is God if we are to be free of our sins. Why does it matter whether or not we believe that Jesus is God? Let's keep reading verse 25. So they were saying to them, who are you? Jesus told them, what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge about you. But the one who sent me is true. And those things I have heard from him, these things I speak into the cosmos. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. As we read through the prophets in the Old Testament, there is a common refrain that's repeated by prophet after prophet after prophet. And Jesus quotes it. God, one of God's persistent complaints about Israel is that you have eyes, but don't see. You have ears, but don't hear. And what God is saying there is, I have given you everything you need to see and understand what I'm saying to you. The only reason you don't see it or understand it is that you are pig-headed and don't want to hear it. You choose deliberately to ignore what I'm trying to say to you. The history of Israel is a sad, long history of a people with eyes and ears that never chose to use them. Over and over again. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is speaking to them clearly. 
every step of the way. They misconstrue deliberately what he is saying. When he says, unless you believe that I am, those Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. But they pretend to not understand. Who are you exactly? Jesus says, I've been saying to you the same thing from the very beginning. I'm not being coy or obscure. I've been saying it over and over 50 different ways. I have a whole lot to say and to judge about you. He says, I've, got a, I've still got a lot left to say to you. And I also am in the position that I am going to be the one that has to judge you. There's a whole lot about you I'm going to find myself forced to judge. But the one who sent me is true, God. Those things I have heard from him, these things I speak into the world, into the cosmos. Jesus is literally, not figuratively, literally, God come in the flesh to speak in our languages the message of God to us, to actually by his actions physically in our created order to act out for us the message of God, to speak the word of God into creation. They're rejecting Jesus. They're being deliberately obtuse. And Jesus warns them, Guys, don't forget that I'm going to be the one that ultimately has to judge you. People complain about God. Why is there so much evil in the world? Why does he allow things like 9-11? Why does he let people do horrible things like that to others? Well, God could solve the problem of sin like that. He'd have to kill all of us to do it, but he could do that. He could wipe the human race off the face of the earth. There'd be no more sinners and no more evil. But he chose instead to redeem, to step in and do all that is necessary to make possible our rescue from the sin we ourselves chose. But because God is righteous and because he assumes and accepts fully his responsibility as creator over all creation, he knows he has to judge every one of us. And here's the big question on judgment day. What did you do with my offer of life? I came and took care of your problem. What did you do with my offer? That's really ultimately all that's going to matter on that day. Everything else will be about degrees of life or death. But the big dividing point is going to be what we did with this offer. Jesus tells them, I'm going to have to judge. And if you chose to say, in the face of God Almighty coming to earth to offer you forgiveness and life eternal, if your response was, thanks but no thanks, I am not interested, then on the day of judgment, Jesus will say, I'm going to honor your wishes. 
you don't want life, you won't have it. There is a tremendous consequence to thumbing our nose at God. And it all falls on us because God has offered complete pardon, absolute remaking, transformation and life eternal. If we reject it, it's on us. They didn't understand that he was talking about the Father, God the Father, whose words he is speaking into creation. I have a question from these verses. After warning of the real danger of dying in our sin, Jesus reminds us that he is not only God, but our judge. Why does it matter that Jesus is to judge us? Let's finish with 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, Once you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing of myself. Rather, just as the Father taught me, these things I speak. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I am always doing the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus ties together some pretty big terms from the Old Testament. First, that Son of Man is a reference to Daniel 7. This vision Daniel had of God sitting on his throne, the Ancient of Days. And then on the clouds of heaven arrives one like a Son of Man. And the one on the throne gives to him all dominion and power, a kingdom that will never end. And he will rule the nations. He will rule forever. This is a promise of the coming of the Messiah. So Jesus of himself uses this title, Son of Man, the promised King of Kings, and he's talking about the day in which these people listening to him right now are going to orchestrate his death by crucifixion. Once you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Ego I me, that same phrase. And again, he leaves it hanging. He doesn't say, I am this or that. He is using the divine name. Once you have killed me, and you see me willingly give up my life for the sin of the world, you will know that I am. I'm reminded of the centurion just witnessing how Jesus died, standing at the foot of the cross. He didn't know the first thing about it, but just looking at that, he said, this man was truly the Son of God. Not only that, but in three days, that body that they secured with Roman soldiers and the seal of the procurator and all the force of Rome to keep that body in the tomb, the tomb was empty. Just as Jesus said it would be. They knew. They knew that Jesus was everything he said he was. They just didn't want him. You'll know that I am, and that I don't do anything of myself. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he wanted to go to the cross. In fact, we know from the Gospels that he did not want to go to the cross. 
He prayed to the Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus didn't come here to do his will as a human being on earth. He came to accomplish the will of God Almighty, the Father. Talking about this and the fact that everything he says is just a conveying of the words of the Father. And talking about how he's going to accomplish our rescue from sin and death. He is going to willingly take upon himself the sin of the world. Talking about that moment, he says, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Because I'm always doing the things that are pleasing to him. Some people, and I've said it, I have since come to a different opinion. But some people talk about at the cross there was some kind of a division in God that the Father turned his back on the Son, that he could not look on him because he who who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. And that there was some kind of a rupture at the cross in God. I don't think that's at all what happened now. I think what happened at the cross was God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And as the Father poured out the full measure of the wrath of God against all sin on the Son, they were bound together in that moment of redemption. And God was extinguishing His wrath against all sin on Himself. And the Father never abandoned Jesus because He was always doing the things that are pleasing to him. There's not a moment in which Jesus stepped outside of the perfect will of the Father. And because of that, there was never any fracture in God. He was going to accomplish perfectly the redemption plan he said he had come to accomplish. The author of Hebrews has profound words about this about how Jesus in the days of his flesh through, with loud pleas and supplications uh, was asking the Father and he was heard because of his reverent fear. And even though he was a son, through what he suffered, he learned obedience. He became the perfect author of salvation because he never once deviated from the divine plan. I have a final question. Jesus says that he perfectly completes the will of the Father. Why is this important to his offer of life and freedom from sin? I think we've arrived at the point of urgency in the gospel message. The good news is great. It's good news. God loves us so much that even though we are already sinners, he chose to come and die to rescue us from our sins to make possible not only our forgiveness, but our rescue from the power of sin over us. He wants us back, even though we're the ones that turned away from him and made a mess of everything. But there are elements in this message we can't just move past or ignore. Jesus is not just Savior. He is God. 
He's not just our friend, our companion, our mentor in life, our life coach. He is our maker and ultimately our judge. When he offers free forgiveness, when he promises life everlasting, we need to recognize the magnitude of what is being laid before us. We need to realize just who it is making the offer. And we have to know that if we reject God's offer in Christ Jesus, we've left ourselves with no way at all to deal with the sins that will inevitably consume us. A prayer for you today is that you turn from whatever it is in your life to Jesus, that you turn to him in absolute trust and allow him to do in you what he has promised to do, give you life and light everlasting, rescue you from your sin. Let me say a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you. That you have come to us because you love us. And Lord, we know how difficult we can be, how deliberately obtuse, and how many times we plug our ears and just do not want to listen to you. I thank you that you are so persistent. That you don't just get offended and walk away, but you continue to call us and warn us and plead with us. God, I pray for the gift of surrender, the gift of coming to realize that we have nothing without you. Lord, draw us to yourself and flood our lives with the life and light you came and paid such a a high cost to purchase for us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.